I left my dream world within a week for something higher because I had a new mission. And sometimes we get thrown into missions that we didn't ask for. All I can say is God is faithful. We may not feel prepared, but he does not abandon us even when it feels dark, even when it feels scary, even when it feels overwhelming because all of the above was true. You are hearing stories from people whose lives have been interrupted, and yet they're using their stories to help others. Have you ever thought of using your story to help others by writing a book or creating a podcast? Well, then you're in the right place. Go to www.coachlaurie.com for all the details. Has your life, your dreams been interrupted? Good news. It is possible to reinvent our lives. People are doing it every day. And some are brave enough to share the struggles, disappointments, and challenges. If you are looking for a new beginning, a do-over, or to rediscover your passion, maybe even find a new one, then grab a cup of coffee and let's talk. Interrupted, Act 2, Reinventing Your Legacy, with your host, Coach Lori. You are hearing stories from people whose lives have been interrupted, and yet, They're using their stories to help others. Have you ever thought of using your story to help others by writing a book or creating a podcast? Well, then you're in the right place. Go to www.coachlaurie.com for all the details. Welcome, Allison Zimmerman. She is the author of Parenting the Rainbow. Welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. I am so excited to dive into your book, but First, I want you to tell me about your life and what you're doing and where you live. We actually just moved to a country in Asia. My husband and I, we met in Bible school. Our goal and dream was to work overseas in missions work. We were idealistic. We wanted to change the world. And to be honest with you, when we worked on Guam, we established two recovery centers, Lighthouse Recovery Center, Oasis Empowerment Center, particularly with Oasis. We were dealing with trafficking victims before trafficking was a thing. It wasn't even a buzzword back then, but there were times when the court system would call us and say, hey, we've got some victims. Will you look after them? Because we need to keep them safe even from authorities. Really, our story is a story of just doing the next thing that God put in front of us, not always knowing some of the things we were involved in would later become the big thing that everyone wanted to be a part of. But we fell into most of what we have done pretty innocently, just doing the next step. So you lived on Guam. How long did you live there? I lived on Guam longer than I lived anywhere. I was 23 years on the island of Guam. I only made it to 21 in my native England. We've been 30 years in the Asia Pacific region. And then in 2015, I actually was on a trip in the Philippines. I was about to speak at a big event and I got a call that no mother wants to get. And my youngest son had been run over by a dump truck. You know, you get that call. And so my son happens to be gay and he had come out as gay. And it was his boyfriend that had called me. And I had said to my son, I need your boyfriend to add me as a friend on Facebook because anyone that's in your life needs to be in mine. And that was very important to me that I would be part of the people in part of their lives. 
And to be honest with you, that small act of wanting to be a part of the life of my son possibly helped save his life. Because what happened was he was walking across the road in Washington, D.C., where he was in college, and a dump truck took a right on red. Now, my son was six foot seven, and so he's not tiny. He's not that hard to miss. It was him and his boyfriend. They had just gotten into the crosswalk. I've seen the video. You see the dump truck start to take a right on red. And my son pushes the boyfriend out of the way. But you see the dump truck basically eat him for dinner. It drags him along the road, but you don't see him anymore. He's under the truck. And it goes over the top and the bottom. And you don't see him anymore. You see him walk into the crosswalk. And then the truck takes him away and leaves him on the side of the road. And I get this call from this voice that I had never heard and he said something terrible has happened there's been a terrible accident and you know when you're getting this call you can't even conceive what does this mean because I'm still trying to figure out who the heck is this person whose voice is this the other daughter that lived in DC she always turned her phone off and he didn't have any other family members phone number her roommate's death is such a complicated situation so here am I being told that my kid is lying on the side of the road for dead trying to school this boyfriend into how to contact my daughter. I said, you have to text her roommate and she'll get a vibration because the roommate's deaf. And they were all going to Gallaudet University, the deaf university. So text the roommate, it'll vibrate. Then call the roommate because it will vibrate, vibrate, vibrate. But she needs to see what you're trying to say because she won't be able to hear you and you won't be able to sign to her. So very complicated. He did just what I said. She got vibrated awake. She went into my daughter to say, hey, we've got to go to the hospital. I'm just really grateful that a random kid that I could have rejected, that I could have said, no, stay out of my life, kiddo. It made a big difference to us when it mattered. Just the fact that you chose to love. How was it for you as a missionary for your son to come out? I mean, my son, to be honest, and I, I say this in Parenting the Rainbow, he attempted to be honorable. I mean, he grew up in Asia. The culture of honor is still very much in place. He didn't want to date until he'd come out to his parents. He told us by a Facebook message. I'm driving along. It's like, oh my goodness. I couldn't believe it. And my husband's driving. I stopped reading. He said, what? What's going on? And I'm like, uh, either pull over or promise you'll keep your hands on the wheel. Cause we were coming down a big hill and could have gone off a cliff into the ocean. I think my son was concerned, as were some of our daughters. We have five kids. He's one of five. He's the baby of five. And he's my miracle. He's a miracle child on many, many levels. But they were concerned how it would affect our ministry, particularly because the church has often taken a hard line when it comes to homosexuality. And we've forgotten that we're talking about people with souls, people that Jesus died to save, and we're no better than anybody else. It was shocking on some levels. It changed our world. It said to me, the world I thought I had was not the world I had. And 
another thing that was quite sad to me was I thought I knew my kid. And people would say to me, didn't you know? I'm like, no, what? Know that he's a kind, gentle giant. Because remember, he grew up on the edge of Asia and he ended up being six foot seven. He didn't have many peers that were his height. I knew that even from before he was two years old, he was the tallest kid in the room. And it seemed to me that he should be the most gentle kid in the room because when a child cries, you don't look to the youngest. You look to the biggest brute in the room and that's the one that seems to get the blame. It was life-changing. There were lots and lots of feelings and my husband is like, he wanted to orally process. And so he told people and I didn't tell people. I hid in my room just talking to Jesus about the whole thing. And the people that I did tell, I said, look, I don't want to talk about this. Because I did tell one of my best friends who happens to be a very questioning person. She wants every detail about everything. And to her honor and to her credit, I said, look, I'm telling you this because I want to tell you. I don't want you to hear by the wayside, but I don't want to talk about it. And to be honest, to this date, we still haven't talked talked about it. Just minimal. So I credit her. She was a good friend in that season. What made you decide I'm going to err on the side of loving, even though I'm probably going to be judged? Very many years ago, when my kid was little, someone randomly said to me, what would you do if one of your kids was gay? Because to be honest with you, we were part of a ministry that saw people that wanted to come out of the gay lifestyle. We walked with them in that process. And so we'd been a part of this ministry for a number of years. We were on a traveling team with this group. They were our community. Someone said this, what would you do if one of your kids was gay? And I'm so glad for it because, you know, sometimes we're so flippant with our responses. And I said, well, your kid's your kid. That doesn't change. And I'm honestly really thankful for that because that was the foundation. My kid's my kid. That has not changed. And that's the only thing that hasn't changed right about now in terms of when you get this revelation that your child has come out, your kid is still your kid. This one that God chose to grace and bless your home. Because the thing about this particular kid, because we were in missions work, our airfare bill was consistently over $10,000 just to get us around the world. When I got pregnant with number four, I thought, oh, my husband's going to freak out. So I said, you can get your vasectomy because he'd been talking about a vasectomy because number four was a surprise. But I said to God, Father, I have room in my heart for one more child. Your will be done. My husband got his vasectomy and two years later, I got my, my miracle. So you see, there's no doubt about it that God intended for this precious young man to grace our earth and for me to have the privilege of being his mom. I was grateful for, for what someone else, kind of just a little question, what what if? Well, what if? And that actually stood me in good stead. Okay, so you left us hanging. You get this phone call, a mother's nightmare, and you are in another country. Walk us through that. Well, oh, I'm grateful that I was with good friends who knew how to pray. Because when you're in a crisis... You need good people around you. These people seriously knew how to pray. As I'm speaking, they need us to pray right now because one of their granddaughters has just been diagnosed with Kawasaki syndrome. I'm praying for them in ways that they prayed for me. We're in this vehicle 
when I get the text. Instantly, that vehicle became a war room for prayer. And we were driving along. We were all crying out as if it was everyone in their son. I think I went into a fog. I mean, all I kept doing was checking my phone. I was supposed to be staying somewhere else. The people brought me into their home, said, no, we don't want you on your own. We want you around support services. My husband got me a flight home to Guam. I couldn't get my husband. He was in a prayer meeting. Our accounts of this story are different. I just know that I was the one holding the information that I needed to relay to him. He wasn't answering his phone because he's in a prayer meeting. So I thought, I'm just going to call the office. So I called, called, called the office. My friend Linda picked up the phone. I said, Linda, it's very important. You need to go get past. So she went and got him. He was praying. I could hear his voice in the background. So I told him life changed with one phone call. He managed to get me back to Guam because I'm in the Philippines and Getting off an island is not that simple. And it's Thanksgiving week. He gets me home on Wednesday. It's Thanksgiving day. So we did Thanksgiving and he found me a flight out on the day after Thanksgiving, the last seat on the plane. I landed at Washington, D.C. at the end of November with a suitcase in the name of a hospital. I didn't even own a coat. Got a taxi to the hospital and then a new journey began because when tragedy like this hits your family, it's a world that we know not of. We don't know the language of intubations and ex-fixes and femoral bypasses. It's a new world and a new language. To be honest, I had to learn to stand up because my husband was still on Guam and I called him when I got there because I'm like, what's this going to be like? What am I going to find? Are there going to be tubes everywhere? And yes, there were tubes everywhere. You want to breathe for your person when this is the case. And I called my husband. I said, honey, if we don't get the miracle we want, if our miracle doesn't look like the one we're asking for, you're not the dad that didn't come. And he said, Allison, it's so expensive. And I said, I know, but you're not the dad that didn't come. This is an investment that we're going to make because you're a nice guy. You're not going to be able to live with yourself if you missed an opportunity to potentially say goodbye to your son. And if this is not goodbye, we'll all be rejoicing. But if it is, we'll at least have no regret. Within a week of me getting there, because it wasn't simple, we had a staff of 30 people. We ran a recovery center in the middle of the Pacific. So there were things that had to be arranged for him to come also. He came and my son was still in and out of a coma, didn't even know that his dad was there. Until that point, I'd been staying at the hospital because I landed and lived at the hospital until my husband got there. And then when he came back at Christmas, my son knew it was his dad and he knew he had come. He was so skinny by this point, but he pulled his daddy's head. He said, you're my daddy. You came to me. It was a very sweet and precious moment. But my husband, it reinforced for him, he's the dad that came, as opposed to the dad that showed up when it was convenient. He's hanging between life and death. We can cop out by saying, if it be thy will, Lord, when we have an, a personal agenda, we know what we want. And sometimes we're scared to tell God what we want because we don't want to step out of what he wants. So this is all, 
you know, I'm a good girl, missionary. We've got these rules that we live by. I just knew the word of God didn't lie. So I said, Father, you are God. And I don't believe in Bible roulette. Be where you are in the word and let God speak to you because he knows when you need to be there. And so I happened to be in the Psalms. I said, okay, Lord, whatever you seem to ignite to my heart, that's what I'm going to pray. One day it was breath. And I prayed for breath and he breathed. He kept breathing. And one day it was let the bones you have broken rejoice. So I prayed for those bones. And then one day it was about the dry bones coming back to life. And so I prayed those dry bones back to life. And one day I was in despair. And now we've probably seen a lot of movement, but it didn't feel like sitting by the side of the bed. We'd seen a ton of movement. They had completely reconstructed him. So he's been rebuilt from the inside out. He really is my million dollar man. And he had this thing, it's called an X-Fix. And it's a steel, I don't know what it's made of, titanium probably. It's like an external structure that's burrowed into the hips, which are all wired together. It was holding him together. There were holes, they're about the size of a teacup, the rim of a teacup. And they would clean these, they called them pinholes. They weren't pinholes, that was no pin. But they would clean that and I couldn't bear it because even though he was like in a comatose state, that's the time he, uh, he'd kind of grown. So I'd leave the room when they did this. And at one point I said, God, I feel like I just don't have enough faith. For some reason, I went to the hall of faith in Hebrews 13. I'm in the hall of faith and it's just not really doing it for me. And I said, God, these are men that have done great things for you, but I'm just a little, it's just me here, you and me talking. And I get to the end of that chapter about the final phrase. It said, and women who have received their sons as back from the dead. I let something in me was like, Why can't I be one of those? And it wasn't a, in the name of Jesus, I'm one of those. It was a humble, God, why can't I be one of those? Can I be one of those? It says it in your word and you've been performing your word every step of the way. You've been doing what you said you would do as you've led me to this place in your word. Can I be one of those women? And I kid you not. That was when the big change happened. I'm not even next to my son's bed. I'm sitting on a plastic chair in the waiting room saying, God, can I be one of those women? You know, I'd sit in that room and massive tears. I wasn't crying, but with my inner person was in such deep grief that these great tears would plip plop onto my Bible. But I know for a fact that in that moment, the transaction in heaven took place and my son's life was restored differently than it had been. We had been hanging on by a thread until that point. Now, interestingly enough, there was a doctor from Brazil, I think, Portugal. He would sit in the room because when you're in ICU, you've got this massive room basically to yourself with millions Millions of dollars of equipment all around you. And he'd sit in the room just watching us. I knew he was there, but I was engaging with heaven on behalf of my son. So we he wasn't an audience, but he was observing something. And he just would, every time he got a break, he'd come and sit in that room and watch. When they finally did release us from the hospital, because in the grace and mercy of God, he gave us our son back and he was released from the hospital way too soon. He was too healthy for ICU and 
too injured for rehab. But when they released us, this particular doctor gave me his cell phone number because he realized they're releasing you early, but I want you to have as much support as you can. And he said to me, when you got here, that's when his life changed. When you got here, now this is the doctor that took his spleen out that would be credited with eventually saving his life because they were pumping blood into him and his spleen was eating the platelets. And so they took his spleen out. This is the doctor that did that. And he said, when you came, that's when he came back to life. And that's from a medical professional. So at some point, I might write particularly about the accident, but from all the angles. Like, what was it like to be that doctor sitting there watching whatever was taking place? How long ago was this? In November, it will be eight years. I left the field very quickly, so I was gone within a week. I'd spent my whole life getting ready to come to the nations, was a very happy missionary, absolutely loved my life, loved the people of Guam. It was our home. We're more comfortable on that island than we would be anywhere else in the world. We fit. We belonged. It's where I raised my children. In fact, when people say to me, where did you grow up? The real truth is I grew up on Guam. I became a woman on Guam. I went there a girl. And Guam taught me so many lessons, so many lessons about hospitality, about life, about walking with people in loss. So I'll ever be grateful to the people of Guam. But I left my dream world within a week for something higher because I had a new mission And sometimes we get thrown into missions that we didn't ask for. All I can say is God is faithful. We may not feel prepared, but he does not abandon us, even when it feels dark, even when it feels scary, even when it feels overwhelming, because all of the above was true. I left the beautiful island of Guam for the scary streets of D.C. I ended up in D.C. for three and a half years. We were getting to the point where... My husband stayed on Guam for three years without me. He would come in for visits here and there. The medical care was not, we couldn't even get our boy there. We would have had to have hired a plane to get us there on a bed of his own. So it wasn't practical. And that's the other thing. When you're in the middle of crisis, people can have lots of opinions about how you should be doing things, but you're living this nightmare. This is not anyone else's nightmare to live. And kudos to you for getting through it. Forget public opinion because people say, why on earth were you apart for three years? I mean, to be honest, we had a child who needed us and a ministry that needed us. And so we just did all we knew how to do. We divided so that we might conquer. It was the only way we knew to do what we were trying to do. Rob could not have just walked away. But when his mom got cancer and he was feeling the tug, it had been three years, he was working hard to put everything into local hands. To be honest, my husband's a hard worker. By his confession, a workaholic. So just fulfilling his roles was going to take three or four people. So setting up a team to do what he did. And then his mom got cancer. And I I said to him, you know, our whole life, we've been on the mission field, our whole adult life. This is a season that you can come and serve and pour into your mom. And what's another six months for us? You'll be in Virginia and I'm in D.C. I can come down by train and see you if I've got care for Ethan. That's what we ended up doing. He came and spent the last six months with his mom and poured into her life and 
she was dying and he took her for hair appointments. He took her for nail appointments. He took her for walks in the fall and he did communion with her every morning. And when he was with her, she'd rally and thrive and she'd look fantastic. And then he'd come up to me for the weekend and she'd plummet and go downhill and he'd come back and she, he'd do communion with her. In the end, it, it just had to be, mom, you're tired. Your body's tired. If you feel the call of heaven, we bless you to respond. I was in DC for three and a half years. We always wanted to get back to the mission field. It was deeply within us. We feel like our lives had purpose and what we did mattered on that island. We had one daughter who had married a kid on a mission trip from the Redding, California area. And we thought, okay, she's rooted. We're going to take our son there because there's still good medical care. We'll take him there and see where we go from here. So we went to Reading. Believe it or not, that daughter has now moved away from Reading. And our son has also gone back to college in D.C. He picked up his uh, studies in the mercy and the grace of God. And we waited for a year. And we still assist our son. So we're basically on retainer. For example, if he ever gets a bowel obstruction, I will go right away to be with him because that's been part of this journey. Because of the scar tissue, his intestines get pulled in funny directions. And we basically manage his life from afar. But there's a lot that he's doing that we step back and watch him do and cheer him on in the process. And that must be how you met our friend Cheryl. We met Cheryl because our son started going to her church. We're like, okay, well, we've been going to a different church, but weren't building community. And we said, eventually, we want to go back on the mission field, but we want to do it in the context of a family. And our son had found this church. He went on Sunday, and the next day, he went to home group. This is like... Our kid is different. He walks with a limp and he's an old soul in a young body. And we're like, whoa, this church must have something. If this is happening and if he's going back, it took us about a month, but we ended up following him to the church. In the church, there were retired missionaries. There were retired pastors. And it's like, whoa, there are people like us here. So this pastor has something that is feeding and sustaining people that are just like us, that are in the process of life isn't what it used to be. They're in transition or they've transitioned into a different kind of life. And this guy has the anointing that is feeding these people. We ended up at the stirring. Seems like in the course of time, the event with our son has taken its appropriate place in our history. Finding the new normal while you're en route to the normal that you wish you had. Are you back at the same place that you left? We are not back in the same place that we left since we did drug rehab. Many of our women who have come through our program are now running programs, not just that program. We did a lot of legwork to go and start an oasis on a different island. 
and someone that used to work for us has taken the stuff and she's starting it on another island. They've asked Rob to be on their board. So it's very exciting. So no, we are not there. We are part of a new initiative. It's an initiative that's going to be sending people into unreached areas. But so we're just part of a teaching team. We're part of the core team. We're the old folk on the team. We want to pour into the young ones who will be going. We also teach in some Bible schools in the Philippines, but we get our official title is care pastor. We get to go continue living the dream and we feel so humbled. Your book is called Parenting the Rainbow. My son told me to write it. He said, oh, Alice, he calls me Alice. Oh, Alice, you've done a pretty good job with this. You should write a book because he was counseling, ministering to kids who were coming out as gay. He basically had a community that he was relating to on their coming out journey. When he had this accident, they filled his room with pictures and cards and gifts. But there was a a picture frame as big as our computer screen, and it had kids from all over the world on this Facebook group of kids who were all praying in their own way for his healing and recovery. It was quite powerful, really. If somebody wants to get it, where is the best place? Amazon. Because this has hit the church on some level, but it's coming. It's going to be way bigger than we are even prepared for. And it seems to be really touching ministry families who have a kid who came out as gay. What is it you really want people to know? He is faithful to his word. On my epitaph, I think it would be a great epitaph. She loved the word and it came to pass. And what are you reading? I just finished something by Beth Moore, who I think is a phenomenal Bible teacher. And I usually have a health book or two on the go at the same time. All my knotted up life. Allison, thank you so much. Much love. Do you have brain fog? Are you exhausted all the time? Do you struggle with depression? How about cravings? Imagine an enzyme that turns sugar into fiber. For a link to order your bottle, email me at lacoach at comcast.net. That's L-A-C-O-A-C-H at comcast.net. Three things we learned from Allison. When life is hanging in the balance, even though you are praying and believing, you still want to show up. We parent the child. No matter what, they're always our child. And even though during the interruption, time might seem like it's rolling so, so slow, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of your dream. If you love this podcast, here's a big ask. Will you share with your friends and family? Subscribe, give us a review and a five-star rating so that others looking to reinvent their lives will be able to get the help they're looking for. Thank you in advance.